Section 23 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary II, Chapter 3, Part 2. The Princess of Orange received from her father a letter dated November 29, 1687, in which he mentions his queen's situation, with some particulars of her health, and adding as news, the death of Mrs. Nellie Gwynne, and that she had not left the Duke of St. Albans so much as was believed. A great increase of zeal for the welfare of the Church of England was the only symptom shown by the Princess of Orange at the receipt of the intelligence regarding her father's hopes of offspring. An event likely to be subversive of her husband's ambitious anticipations, in which there cannot exist doubts that she fully participated, notwithstanding all her disclaiming speeches and letters on the subject of her succession. Then commenced some religious controversy between the father and daughter, which, however, was carried on in a moderate manner. The king sent his daughter controversial books by his resident minister, Dalbaville, from Whitehall, February 24th, 1687 or 88. He wrote to her thus, I pray God to touch your heart as he did your mother's, who, for many years, was as zealous a Protestant and as knowing in it as you can be. If the king thought that his daughter's firmness in her religious opinions could be shaken by an appeal to the memory of her dead mother, he was greatly mistaken. Mary was at a tender age when she lost her mother. There is no evidence, but quite the contrary, that she cherished either love or respect for her. King James continued his injudicious observations on religion in his letter of February 28, 1687 or 88 that one of her instructors in religion, that is Compton, Bishop of London, holds several tenets which do not agree with the true doctrine of the Church of England. This I was not told, but heard him declare it in the pulpit many years since, in the chapel here at Whitehall, and I took notice of it then to a bishop that stood by me, and I know that several others of the clergy do so also, and lean much more to the Presbyterian tenets than they ought to do, and they generally run more and more every day into those opinions than ever they did, and quit their true principles. This was extraordinary language for the convert of Rome to urge his daughter, and shows a lingering love for the Church of England, the tenets of which he thus allowed were those of a true church. The biographer of Dr. Tollison insists, among the other great merits of that prelate, on his having driven James II, when Duke of York, from Whitehall Chapel by his sermon against popery in 1672. Would it not have been a far higher triumph to have kept him there? Persuading him to remain a true disciple of the church, which Tolleson at that time professed? At the commencement of the year 1688, Dr. Stanley, the almoner of the Princess of Orange, wrote by her desire this letter to Archbishop Sancroft. Dr. Stanley to the Archbishop of Canterbury, The Hague, January 24th, 1687 or 88. I suppose your grace may have heard that the king hath not been wanting to press his daughter here to be favorable to popery, but lest you should have heard more than is true, I presume to acquaint your lordship with what hath passed her royal highness being pleased to make me privy to it, and giving me an express leave to communicate it to your grace. Whatever reports have been raised, King James hath scarcely ever, 
either spoken or written, to our excellent princess, to persuade her to popery, till last Christmas, that is 1687. When the Marquess d'Albeville came hither, when the king her father sent by him a very long letter written with his own hand, two sheets of paper containing the motives of his conversion to popery. The letter mentioned here by Dr. Stanley is still in existence. It is written in James II's best historical style. He gives his daughter the history of his early youth, his strong affection to the Church of England, as inculcated by his beloved tutor, Dr. Stewart. He mentions the great pain his mother, that is Queen Henrietta, gave him by her persecution of his young brother, Gloucester, and the disgrace he was in with her for encouraging Gloucester to remain true to the Church of England in its adversity. King James informed his daughter that he was himself in his youth as zealous as she could be for the Church of England, yet no one endeavored in France to convert him but a nun, who declared, when she found her labor in vain, that she would pray for him without ceasing. The rest of this document narrates his reasons for his change to the Church of Rome, which may be spared here. Even Dr. Stanley's abstract of them we pass by, as containing nothing personal of the daughter Mary herself. It has also long been familiar to historical readers. One remark may be permitted that we gather from James's narrative that he changed his religion rather out of contradiction than from conviction of the superiority of the Roman Church over the Reformed Catholic Church more from disgust of the polemic railings he heard in the pulpit than from any other motive. Dr. Stanley, who was at that time almoner at The Hague, thus continues. Our excellent princess, seeing this letter, written with the king's own hand, was resolved to write and answer herself as the king desired, without consulting any of us, that is, her chaplains, that he might see she was very ready to give an account of herself. The very next day, being post-day, she made haste and wrote a letter to King James of two sheets of paper, which she afterwards read to me, which truly I can, without flattery, say was the best letter I ever saw, treating James with that respect which became her father and king, and yet speaking her mind freely and openly, as became the cause of religion, and that she hoped that God would give her grace to live and die in that of the Church of England." The praises Dr. Stanley bestowed on the genius for controversy displayed by his princess inspired her with the ambition of her letter being seen and admired by Archbishop Sancroft, and therefore he kindly offered to send him a copy, and hoped he would write his commendations of the princess and secretly send them to Dr. Tennyson, who would forward them to her royal highness. And if your grace, he adds, doth take some notice to her of her carriage in this affair, as I have related it, I believe it will be very acceptable to her. No doubt it would, but Archbishop Sancroft was not the man who deemed that a private letter from a daughter to a father should be blazoned abroad. For, however she might have the best of the argument, a public and ostentatious exposure of the errors of a parent is not the most respectable road to the praise of others. Piety, unalloyed by the leaven of the Pharisee, would have labored with filial love to induce a change in her unfortunate sire, without parade or canvassing, for admiration. Such were the feelings of Archbishop Sancroft on this subject. Not one word in reply did he send to the Hague, 
yet with stern integrity he relaxed not his steady opposition to the course his sovereign was pursuing the first day of the year sixteen eighty seven or eighty eight brought intelligence which roused the princess anne and her miniature court from exclusive attention to their own petty politics and intrigues to the apprehension that the reversionary prospect of her wearing one day the crown of great britain and transmitting it to her descendants might be altogether obscured by the birth of an heir apparent thanks were that day offered up in all churches in england that the queen of james the second was enciente every intrigue that had existed between the malcontents of england and holland forthwith grew livelier as the hopes or fears of parties interested became stronger from that moment the secret correspondence from england maintained by all sorts and conditions of persons with mary and her husband grew every hour more animated there were few persons at the court of james but were playing the parts of spies with various degrees of treachery many of these correspondents were exceedingly bitter against each other and if mary of orange had been a philosophic observer of character she had curious opportunities for exercising her reflective powers as the letters she daily received unveiled the clashing interests and opinions of her correspondents at the head of this band of her father's enemies figures her sister his deeply loved and indulged darling the princess anne a bitter and malicious pen did anne hold in her youth perhaps the spirit of sarah churchill her favorite and ruler inspired her with a portion of its venom her chief hatred was towards the queen her stepmother and lady sunderland in this series of letters the two sisters had nicknames for their father and his queen who in their correspondence were manzel and manzel's wife the prime minister sunderland and his countess were rogers and rogers wife sunderland and his wife had been foremost among the secret agents aiding the machinations of william and mary this fact was not known to anne who indulged her spirit of envious detraction whenever she mentioned lady sunderland and the traits she drew in various of her epistles of this person for the information of her sister mary form a portrait graphically drawn and certainly a likeness yet the spirit in which the letters are written creates more abhorrence for the writer than for the subject the princess of denmark to mary princess of orange cockpit march twentieth sixteen eighty eight i can't end my letter without telling you that lady sunderland plays the hypocrite more than ever for she goes to st martin's church morning and afternoon because there are not people enough to see her at whitehall chapel and is half an hour before other people and half an hour after everybody is gone at her private devotions she runs from church to church and keeps up such a clatter with her devotions that it really turns one's stomach sure there never was a couple so well matched as she and her good husband for as she is throughout the greatest jade that ever was so he is the subtlest workingest villain that is on the face of the earth then follows an extract which as the date is the same day march twentieth sixteen eighty eight must have been part of the same epistle i hope you will instruct berkeley what you will have your friends do if any occasion that is occasion should exist as it is to be feared there will especially if manzel that is her father has a son which i conclude he will there being so much reason to believe for methinks if it not were there having been so many stories and fuss made about it 
On the contrary, when anyone talks of her situation, she looks as if she were afraid we should touch her, and whenever I happen to be in the room, and she has been undressing, she has always gone in the bedroom. These things give me so much suspicion that I believe, when she is brought to bed, no one will be convinced tis her child, unless it prove a daughter. Can anyone be more utterly absurd than this expression? Particularly as the poor queen had previously brought into the world a son, there can be no possible reason why she should not bear another now. The Princess Anne seems to have forgotten that the babe must have been either daughter or son. Probably the Berkeley, whom she mentions in the commencement, was her first lady, one of the Villiers sisters, who had undertaken a voyage to Holland, on occasions, to use the droll orthography of Her Royal Highness, that she considered were safer uttered by the word of mouth than committed to paper. The Princess Anne of Denmark meditated a voyage to Holland. She thus testifies her displeasure at her father's prohibition of her tour to The Hague. I am denied the satisfaction of seeing you, my dearest sister, this spring, though the king gave me leave when I first asked it. I impute this to Lord Sunderland, for the king trusts him with everything, and he, going on so fiercely in the interests of the papists, is afraid you should be told a true character of him. You may remember, I have once before ventured to tell you, that I thought Lord Sunderland a very ill man, and I am more confirmed every day in that opinion. Everybody knows how often this man turned backwards and forwards in the late king's time, and now to complete all his virtues, he is working with all his might to bring in popery. He is perpetually with the priests, and stirs up the king to do things faster than I believe he would of himself. This worthy lord does not go publicly to mass, but hears it privately in a priest's chamber. His lady, Sunderland, is as extraordinary in her kind, for she is a flattering, dissembling, false woman. But she has so fawning and endearing a way, that she will deceive anybody at first, and it is not possible to find out all her ways in a little time. She cares not at what rate she lives, but never pays anybody. She will cheat, though it be for a little. Then she has had her gallants, though may be, not so many as some ladies here, and with all these good qualities, she is a constant church woman, so that, to outward appearance, one would take her for a saint, and to hear her talk, you would think she were a very good Protestant, but she is as much one as the other, for it is certain that her lord does nothing without her. One thing I forgot to tell you about this noble lord, which is, that it is thought, if everything does not go here as he would have it, that he will pick a quarrel with the court, and so retire, and by that means it is possible he may make his court to you. By which sentence Anne plainly shows that she was not ignorant that Sunderland's court was ready-made to the powers at the Hague. Such was the spirit in which these princesses corresponded. Much have we been forced to suppress, and pass on now as unfit for family reading, with the remark that good women would have lost all the regality the world could offer, rather than have held such a correspondence, or become the fosterers of such an intrigue as that by which they proclaimed their unfortunate brother a spurious child. This plot evidently originated in the brain of the Princess Anne and her colleagues. It was first broached in the letter of March, before quoted. Three months before the hapless infant, it disinherited saw the light. In another letter, too thoroughly coarse and odious to quote, 
addressed to her sister Mary, and dated from the cockpit, March 1688, and again affirms, that if the expected royal offspring should not prove a daughter, she will not believe it to be the queen's child. Nearly at the same time, Deval, the French ambassador to the States of Holland, wrote to his court, that if the Queen of James II was put to bed of a son, that the Prince of Orange was resolved to attempt to seize the British crown, for he was sure that the Calvinists in England would not permit any Prince of Wales to supersede the rights of his wife. The people of Great Britain were perfectly right solemnly to refuse to acknowledge a successor who was not to be educated in the established religion, their determination simply and firmly expressed, without false witness or calumny, would have been sufficient. The people in reality acted thus, and acted well. The falsehood and calumny did not originate with them, but with the two daughters and the nephew of James II. And in the face of the odious documents they have left, how can we call their evil good? It would, indeed, be a vain attempt, because no reader of documents left by the princesses could come to the same opinion. In one of the letters alluded to, the Princess Anne insinuates to her sister that her life would be in danger from her father if she visited England. The undeviating indulgence and personal kindness of this unfortunate father to these daughters has been shown by a succession of facts. It was a part of his lot, which, as he has declared in his memoirs, he felt to be peculiarly bitter, that his children, who ought to have compared his conduct to them from their youth upwards, could accuse him of either intending to destroy them, or of meaning to supplant them, by the imposture of pretended offspring. Hear other words of Anne. There is one thing about yourself that I cannot help giving my opinion in, which is, that if King James should desire you and the Prince of Orange to come over to make him a visit, I think it would be better, if you can make any handsome excuse, not to do it, for though I dare swear the king could have no thought against either of you, yet since people can say one thing and do another, one cannot help being afraid. If either of you should come, I should be very glad to see you, but really if you or the prince should come, I should be frightened out of my wits for fear any harm should happen to either of you. After this incendiary missive, the correspondence was interrupted for a short time by an illness of the Princess Anne. Her father was greatly alarmed and rose early to visit her on the morning of April the 16th, 1688. Her uncle, Lord Clarendon, had been roused at four in the morning with the tidings of her danger. He hurried to the cockpit to see her and found the anxious parent sitting by her bedside. Could he have had one glance at the calumnies which were going to Holland every post from that very daughter, what would have been his reflections on the contrast in the affections of the father with that of the child? It does not appear that James II ever resorted to the same means of reading private letters which we have seen practiced by the Prince of Orange. The Stuarts were weak enough to deem that similar proceedings were inconsistent with the honor of gentlemen. The princess went, during her recovery, to visit her father at his palace of Richmond, from whence she vented her hatred to her unfortunate stepmother in the following letter. The Princess Anne to the Princess of Orange. Richmond, 9th of May, 1688. The queen, you must know, is of a very proud and haughty humor, and though she pretends to hate all form and ceremony, one sees that those who make their court that way are very well thought of. She declares always, 
that she loves sincerity and hates flattery. But when the grossest flattery in the world is said to her face, she seems exceedingly well pleased with it. It really is enough to turn one's stomach, to hear what things are said to her of that kind, and to see how mightily she is satisfied with it. All these things Lady Sunderland has in perfection, to make her court to her. She is now much oftener with the queen than she used to be. It is a sad and a very uneasy thing to be forced to live civilly and as it were freely with a woman that every one knows hates one and does all she can to undo everybody, which she, that is Lady Sunderland, certainly does. One thing I must say of the queen, which is that she is the most hated in the world of all sorts of people, for everybody believes that she presses the king to be more violent than he would be himself, which is not unlikely, for she is a very great bigot in her way. All ladies of quality say she is so proud, that they do not care to come oftener than they needs must, just out of mere duty, and indeed she has not so great court as she used to have. She pretends to have a great deal of kindness for me, but I doubt it is not real, for I never see proofs of it, but rather the contrary. The gossip of that day circulated a story that the queen, as she sat at her toilet with the Princess Anne, had, on some dispute between them, tossed her glove in the princess's face. This tale, if true, would never have been omitted by Anne in her correspondence, were it only to justify the hatred she virulently expresses against her hapless stepmother, whose manner to her she is obliged to own, expresses not only politeness, but a great deal of kindness. Now tossing a glove in a person's face is not consistent with either politeness or kindness, nor does the Princess Anne attempt any excuse for her envenomed hatred, excepting her own suspicions that the Queen's affection was not real, together with her envy of the flatteries and distinctions of royalty with which she was surrounded. At the conclusion of this letter, the Princess Anne repeated her expectations that her father would persecute her by attacks on her religious principles. This he certainly never did, even when she was a child. However, she says that she supposes the persecution would begin when her husband, Prince George, went to visit the court of Denmark that summer. The arrangement between the princesses of Orange and Denmark was that Prince George was to escort the latter to The Hague, where she was to stay on a visit till his return from his own country. This plan was entirely forbidden by James II, and Anne, in the course of her correspondence, often expresses her anger at this prohibition. It is difficult to divine Anne's reasons for desiring to leave England at this crisis, unless she intended to make the same political use of her absence, which she afterwards did, when she insisted on going to Bath, previous to the accouchment of the Queen, to avoid being a witness of her brother's birth, that she might enjoy the opportunity of raising an outcry, by means of her partisans, as if she had been forced to withdraw. Had the visit been permitted, Lady Churchill, who ruled the Princess Anne, would have been her companion, and it would have been utterly impossible for her to have restrained her propensity to quarrel and engender strife with all around her, at the court of the Princess of Orange. Indeed, from the furious divisions which subsequently took place when these persons, at this era so strongly united against the King and Queen, came in contact with each other, it may be guessed what would have been the result had the king permitted his daughter Anne to visit her sister at The Hague. 
the princess of orange in a letter which is not forthcoming had ventured to express to her sister disgust and distrust of the manners and disposition of her favourite which was answered in the following terms march sixteen eighty eight sorry people have taken such pains to give so ill a character of lady churchill i believe there is nobody in the world has better notions of religion than she has it is true she is not so strict as some are nor does she keep such a bustle with religion which i confess i think is never the worse for one sees so many saints mere devils that if one be a good christian the less show one makes the better in my opinion then as for moral principles tis impossible to have better and without all that lifting up the hands and eyes and often going to church will prove but a very lame devotion one thing more i must say for her which is that she has a true sense of the doctrine of our church and abhors all the principles of the church of rome so as to this particular i assure you she will never change the same thing i will venture now i am on this subject to say for her lord for though he is a very faithful servant to king james and the king is very kind to him and i believe he will always obey the king in all things that are consistent with religion yet rather than change that i dare say he will lose all his places and everything that he has the king once talked to her upon religion upon occasion of her talking to some lady or looking another way when a priest said grace at the king's table this defence is indisputably written in lady churchill's own bold style of composition the princess of orange found from it that she had committed a mistake by expressing her opinion of that favourite whom she afterwards sought to propitiate by the following soothing billet the princess of orange to lady churchill dr stanley's going to england is too good an opportunity for me to lose of assuring lady churchill she cannot give me greater satisfaction than in letting me know the firm resolution both lord churchill and you have taken never to be wanting in what you owe to your religion such a generous resolution i am sure must make you deserve the esteem of all good people and my sisters in particular i need say nothing of mine you have it upon double account as my sister's friend besides what i have said already and you may be assured that i shall always be glad of an occasion to show it both to your lord and you i have nothing more to add for your friendship makes my sister as dear to me as to you and i am persuaded we shall ever agree in our care of her as i believe she and i should in our kindness for you were we near enough to renew our acquaintance marie another of these agreeable and friendly notes was written by the princess of orange to the woman she so thoroughly abhorred both before and after the revolution the efforts of mary were however vain to palliate the political blunders she had committed by her first genuine expression of aversion which had assuredly been communicated by anne to this object all these caresses and hints of future kindness were near enough only effected an alliance between the house of orange and that of churchill for a few important months the princess of orange to lady churchill no date if it were as easy for me to write to my lady churchill as it is hard to find a safe hand she might justly wonder at my long silence but i hope she does me more justice than to think it my fault i have little to say at present but that i hope my sister and you will never part 
I send you here one letter for her, and have not any more time now than only to assure you that I shall never forget the kindness you show to her, who is so dear to me. That and all the good I have heard of you will make me ever your affectionate friend, which I shall be ready to show otherwise than by words, when I have the opportunity. Marie. The letters of Anne, at last, announced to her sister in Holland, that an unfortunate brother had made his entrance into a world, which proved so adverse to him. This event, calamitous to himself, to his country, to his father and mother, took place on Trinity Sunday morning, June 10th, 1688. The Princess Anne had betaken herself to Bath, on pretense of her situation needing the waters, in order that she might not be present at the Queen's accouchment. Nevertheless, she wrote to her sister in the following strain. She had arrived in London from Bath with Prince George on the 15th of June, and the prince sailed for Denmark two days afterwards. The Cockpit, June 18th, 1688. My dear sister cannot imagine the concern and vexation I have been in, that I should be so unfortunate to be out of town when the queen was brought to bed, for I shall never more be satisfied whether the child be true or false. It may be our brother, but God knows. Anne's vacillation between her own interest and her conscience are visible throughout the composition of this epistle. She continues. After all this, tis possible it may be her child, that is the queen's, but where one believes it, a thousand do not. For my part, except they do give very plain demonstrations, which tis almost impossible now, I shall ever be of the number of the unbelievers. I do not find that people are at all disheartened, but seem all of a mind, which is a very comfortable thing at such a time as this. Thus the Princess Anne affirms of herself that she found it a very comfortable thing. For everybody to believe that her father from whom she had never received an angry word, could be guilty of the crime of imposing a spurious heir, not only on his country, but on himself and his family. When the crown coveted by Anne had been burning on her brow for a few years, her ideas of the comforts arising from gratified ambition were different, to which the details of her physician, Dr. Arbuthnot, bear melancholy witness. Part of the time of her husband's absence in Denmark, which lasted till October, was passed by Anne in visits to her father, for her letters are dated from Windsor or Richmond Palace. In one of these, she says, Though we agree in matters of religion, yet I cannot help fearing that you are not of my opinion in other matters, because you have never answered me to anything that I have said of Roger, that is Lord Sunderland, nor of Mansell's, that is her father's, wife. It is not difficult to gather from this last epistle that Mary had exercised a certain degree of caution in noticing Anne's scandalous insinuations, who nevertheless proceeded in the same strain, and in the next letter outwardly exults in the expected demise of her unwelcome little brother in these words. The Cockpit, July 9th, 1688 The Prince of Wales has been ill these three or four days, and if he has been so bad as people say, I believe it will not be long before he is an angel in heaven. At last, the Princess of Orange responded to the principal subject of her sister's letters by sending to her a string of queries relative to the birth of the Prince of Wales, couched in a language inadmissible here. 
they were answered in the same style by the princess anne who prefaced and ended her answers with the following epistle the princess anne of denmark to the princess of orange the cockpit july twenty fourth sixteen eighty eight i received yesterday yours of the nineteenth by which i find you are not satisfied with the account i have given you in my last letter but i hope you will forgive me for being no more particular when you consider that not being upon the place all i could know must be from others and having then been but a few days in town i had not time to inquire so narrowly into things as i have since but before i say any more i can't help telling you i am very sorry you should think i would be negligent in letting you know things of any consequence for though i am generally lazy and it is true indeed when i write by post for the most part i make these letters very short not daring to tell you any news by it and being very ill at invention yet i hope you will forgive my being lazy when i write such letters since i have never missed any opportunity of giving you all the intelligence i am able and pray be not so unjust to believe i can think the doing anything you can desire any trouble for certainly i would do a great deal more for you if it lay in my power than the answering your questions which i shall now do exactly as you desire these answers cannot be transcribed here being given to technical questions only comprehensible to medical persons though needlessly rendered disgusting by the princess anne's irreclaimable vulgarity of soul occasionally she betrayed unconsciously her actual belief in the identity of her unfortunate brother and the same conviction must have occurred in the clearer brain of the princess of orange nothing that the privy council afterwards received as evidence could bring stronger testimony of that truth than the queries and replies of these sisters and after finishing her answers concludes her epistle in these words i have done my endeavour to inform myself of everything for i have spoken with mrs dawson and asked her all the questions i could think of for though not being in the same room when the queen was brought to bed one must inquire of somebody that was there and i thought she could tell me as much as anybody and would be less likely to speak of it and i took all the care i could when i spoke to her to do it in such a manner that i might know everything and in case she should betray me that the king and queen should not be angry with me mrs dawson was an elderly woman belonging to the royal household and of the established religion who had been present with anne hyde duchess of york when both the princesses mary and anne were born at a subsequent period she more solemnly attested to anne that the prince of wales was as much the son of the queen as she was the daughter of the duchess of york her conversation with anne at this juncture had again awakened some qualms of conscience in the bosom of that princess for she concludes her letter with the following admission all she that is mrs dawson says seems wonderfully clear but one does not know what to think for methinks it is wonderful if it is no cheat that they never took pains to convince me of it i hope i have answered your letter as fully as you desire if there be anything else you would know pray tell me by the first safe hand and you shall always find me very diligent in obeying you and showing by my actions how real and sincere my kindness is nothing could be more embarrassing to a mind predetermined as that of the princess of orange to view the birth of her unwelcome brother with hostility than the tender and friendly letters she received from home by every post 
written either by her father or the queen. She had been given no feasible reason for resentment, and it was difficult to repulse the tone of family affection, which had been accustomed to greet her with little billets of remembrance. The unfortunate queen of her father employed her first convalescence in writing to her, addressing her billet to, My dear Lemon. It will be remembered that this was a fond name invented at St. James's when the princess married, in contradistinction to the name of Orange. How utterly unconscious the queen must have been of the detestable correspondence passing regarding her between her stepdaughters, the use of this little endearment shows. From the answer of the Princess of Orange, the queen gathered that the friendship which she had formerly professed for her was estranged. Again, the princess received a letter, difficult to answer, though the tone was that of tender remonstrance. It is, however, far from being worded angrily. The answers of the Princess of Orange to the Queen's letters seem to have been cold and ambiguous. They are not preserved, but many indications of their latent displeasure were daily sent to England. A grand fete with fireworks had been given to the resident ministers at The Hague by the British legation in order to celebrate the birth of the Prince of Wales. The maids of the Princess of Orange had been invited guests. These ladies were not content with refusals, but they manifested great anger and reviled the inviter. Moreover, it was observed that the Prince of Wales had not constantly the benefit of the prayers of his sister in her English chapel. Sometimes he was prayed for, and sometimes, as her father observes, quite omitted. When her father heard of this neglect, he wrote a letter of remonstrance in which he asked his daughter the difficult question, of what offense had been given? Her answer is preserved among her father's papers. It will be noticed that she had somewhat lost her English orthography. The Princess of Orange to James II. Hague, August 17, 1688. Sir, being to go to Lou next Thursday, if it please God, I am come to this place, that is the Hague, to go bake at night. Last Thursday, I received your majesties of the 31st of July, by which I see you have heard that the Prince of Wales was no more prayed for in my chapel. But long before this, you will know that it had only been sometimes forgot. Monsieur d'Albeville can assure you I never told him it was forbid, so that they were only conjectures made upon its being sometimes neglected. But he can tell, as I find your majesty already knows, that he, the Prince of Wales, was prayed for here long before it was done in England. This excessive hot weather continues longer than I ever knew it, which I shall find sufficiently in my journey. I have nothing more to add at present than only to beg your majesty to believe, wherever I am, I shall still be your majesty's most obedient daughter and servant, Marie. Another letter of remonstrance was received by the Princess of Orange from her father's wife, who anxiously required from her stepdaughter expressions of sisterly love towards the newborn infant. The correspondence continued between the Princess of Orange and the Queen until the landing of William. Now and then, a letter has been preserved, either by James II or William III, which presents us with a tantalizing glimpse of their conduct and feelings. End of section 23